Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Lots to do this WIP day, so we'll get to it in just a bit. But first, a couple things need to be said. Number one, the tragedy in Santa Fe, Texas. When is the madness going to stop? I don't know what the answer is to guns and people getting guns and shooting up schools and killing innocent children, but it's got to stop. I am so glad my children have aged out of school so they don't go into harm's way because I can't imagine thinking school is not a safe place for your child, but apparently it's not a safe place anymore. It's got to stop. And I also want to say congratulations to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. May they live happily ever after, just like in the fairy tale that they started yesterday. And when we come back in just a bit, calm clarity. In the world of craziness, witness Santa Fe. How do we get calm clarity? And it's the title of a new book, Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy. Wisdom, fulfillment, joy, and a whole lot more when we come back here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back, and it's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, and we just lost our guest. Um, We'll have her in just a minute. But in the meantime, anybody who has any thoughts on what we need to do about things like the recent tragedy in Santa Fe, get in touch with me. I'd like to put you on the air. You can reach me at peter.solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, at hotmail.com, peter.solomon at hotmail.com, and we'll talk about what you can bring to the airwaves. And we've got our guest this morning, author of Calm Clarity, How to See You Success, Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy. Good morning, Dwayne Quash. Good morning. Thank you for joining me. What led oh, you, thank you for having me. My pleasure. What led you to write this book? I wrote this book because I grew up in a really, really tough situation, and I wanted to be able to show people that you can navigate a broken system without being broken, that it's possible even if you grow up in, you know, surrounded by violence um, and, you know, life is really tough, that we all can um, change the way our brain works so that we can live fulfilling um, lives and make a positive impact on our communities, that we can be the author of our life story, that we don't have to um, be broken by the adversity that life throws at us. And how did you grow up? Well, I grew up in um, this area of Philadelphia called Logan and then in West Oak Lane. Um, and as a refugee from Vietnam back in the 80s, um, there was a time that was quite violent in our city, and many of the refugees um, experienced discrimination, um, violence um, in our neighborhood. Um, it was pretty uh, normal to get hassled and called names and have your life threatened. Um, and unfortunately, a number of the people in the refugee community were shot and killed including friends and relatives. What a horrible thing to have happen. Uh, to what do you attribute the success of overcoming that history? Well, I think first was just the determination on my part to not be limited or defined by my surroundings and to one day find a path out of 
this cycle of violence and trauma and be able to share whatever I learned and how I did it with the greater community so that more people can overcome adversity. So I think from a young age I knew that um, life wasn't fair and that people had to deal with more than, you know, what you can reasonably expect a young person to have to cope with. Um, and it was easy to lose hope, but I just, I just knew that I wanted to find a way out and be able to share that path with others. And what was the way out? Well, my parents always emphasized education because that's something that probably wouldn't have been available to me had they stayed in Vietnam. And, um, you know, from an early age, I knew that they respected teachers and that if I had a great education, I'd be able to get a real job. Whereas my parents, as um, refugees who couldn't speak much English, had to do a lot of hard manual labor to earn the money to pay the bills. Um, I decided to, you know, really love school, and I loved learning, and um, eventually it turned out that I was academically gifted, and I got into Harvard College. Not only Harvard College, but a master's from Wharton degree from Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, yes. So um, when you're able to get into a school like that, everyone assumes, you know, that life is going to be easy from there on. Um, but having to navigate between these two poles of the socioeconomic spectrum is not easy. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of students or first-generation college students, you know, who are the first in their families to go to college, um, I wasn't exactly the first because my older brother did go to college, but I was the first to get into an Ivy League college and into a situation where, you know, my parents really couldn't support or understand what I was going through. And, you know, one of the things I'm doing now is I created the Collective Success Network to help more um, first-generation college students from low-income communities um, succeed. Because once you get to college um, and you lose your sense of identity and you don't have a social support system to integrate into the college and you don't understand the references people make, what people talk about, you can feel really lost there because there's no one you can turn to for help. Um, and so one of the big, big things that I'm trying to do is make sure that students don't fall to, through the cracks and they get the help, mentorship, support, and guidance they need, not just to succeed and thrive in college, but also to enter a professional career afterwards. Because I found even though I was at Harvard, um, there was no one I could talk to to help me think about what happened after Harvard. And I actually graduated unemployed, even though I graduated with honors, and it took me you know, six months or so to find a job. What don't people understand about being the first in your family to go to college? Well, one, there's enormous pressure on you because, you know, everyone in your family thinks, oh, now that you're in college, you're a smart one, and you have to help them, even though you barely understand more than they do about the world. And then once you get to college, you realize it's a whole different game than high school and you're kind of on your own. There's no more hand-holding to navigate and make decisions that could affect the rest of your life. What major do you want? What um, you know classes do you take? What internship do you get or not get? Do you decide to work a part-time job you know that pays the bills, or do you, you try to be strategic about you know a job that builds your resume? And I think a lot of college students, without a um, a family member to guide them, they end up making less effective decisions on, you know, based on short-term needs, like having it to pay the bills, and they end up not building 
a resume and they not end up not building you know, steps towards a professional career, which is why they went to college in the first place. And so, you know, in Philadelphia and across the board, so many first-generation college students um, end up dropping out of college because, you know, they get frustrated or they have a few setbacks and they think it's the end of the world and they don't know how to fix it. And, and in other cases, people do graduate, but it could take them, you know, two, three years to, if ever, if they ever transition into a professional career. What major did you pursue? What major did you pursue? So in the beginning, my parents really wanted me to be a doctor. And at Harvard, there was no pre-med major. So I decided to try history of science because I really loved learning more about science. Um, but then I actually had a lot of suppressed trauma growing up. Like when I was in uh, middle school, um, um, you know, gangs used to come into our take it all the time. But one night, one of the people... Um, had crossed the wrong person, and his day has come. So leaving the takeout restaurant, he was shot in the head. Mm. Um, and, you know, the paramedics took him away, but they left all the blood in the brains for us to clean up. And it was, it, I mean, it was, I would, I'm, I'll never forget what that was like. Um, and so for me, like trying to get into um, the medical field would just keep bringing up these tra- traumatic experiences, right? And, and and they were never resolved. And, you know, I kept worrying about my family, whether they were safe, even though I was more safe at Harvard. And, you know, all this, um, these symptoms of PTSD, they blew up, and I didn't know how to handle it at Harvard. Um, and so eventually my brain just stopped working for me to be able to pursue a science degree, and it, it just didn't make any sense anymore. And I eventually decided to become an art major, um, and I found art classes actually therapeutic for helping me integrate my story and, you know, learn more about what happened to me and really explore that artistically. And part of the reason I was able to graduate with honors was because being an art major really did help me heal. Mm. That's, that's good to hear. But what pushed you to Wharton? So after um, I graduated from Harvard, like I said, it took me about six months to find a job. And I was very lucky. I got help from my classmates who had ended up in a field called management consulting. And they assured me that I was just as qualified for this field as they were. So they coached me how to get a job in this field. And eventually I was successful. And it turned out that everyone in management consulting goes to business school at some point. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, I guess it's my turn now. And um, when, I, when I was applying for business school, you know, they asked you, what do you want to do and how will donate to this business school help you? And so I wrote about, you know, my desire to one day start a nonprofit to help, you know, students from a low-income background understand that they can be leaders and they can change their community. Um, and Morton, I guess, really loved that story, and they also gave me a scholarship to help me, you know, pay off my bills faster. That's an inspiring story right there, but yet yours continues, certainly. Um, the founding of Calm Clarity is another piece of that important story, certainly, and the Collective Success Network. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned what the Collective Success Network is. What's Calm Clarity? So um, I realized, like, basically, when you 
want to make a difference, you know, in really tough situations, a lot of the obstacles that people, nonprofits focused on are like the outer obstacles, right? And growing up in an environment of negativity, I realized a lot of the obstacles are actually inside us. The stories inside our heads that tell us we can't do it, we can't succeed, everything's going to be hopeless, like why bother, right? And that was what was happening in my head at Harvard. And so I realized, you know, when you want people to succeed, you have to actually help people build the inner strength and resilience to conquer that inner voice that tells them, you know, um, that their, their situation is hopeless, basically, and, and that you shouldn't even try, right? And so it took me a long time to actually really battle these inner demons um, because a lot of first-gen college students have what they call imposter syndrome, this belief that somehow they'll be figured out that they don't actually belong where they are. <laughs> They're just faking it, right? And so um, even though I, I achieved great success in my career, you know, there was always this part of me that kept telling me, you know, things were going to go wrong or, you know, this wasn't going to work out. And eventually um, I came across, you know, this concept of contemplative neuroscience that if you meditate, you can change your brain. And so I decided to give it a try. I took a year off. I traveled through India to learn various meditation techniques. And I realized they were really powerful and that my brain was changing and that I was experiencing much more hope and that that inner voice that told me that nothing was ever going to work out, it became quieter and quieter. And it was being replaced by a voice I call the inner sage that would keep guiding me and showing me a path um, using my own inner wisdom that, you know, things could work out and that I could um, make the impact that I really wanted to make on the world. And so when I came back to Philadelphia after living abroad for seven years doing like um, international management consulting and then private equity investments and the social impact investments, um, I felt ready to finally be the social entrepreneur I wrote about becoming, you know, when I applied to Wharton. And um, what I realized was that, you know, you can't change the needle just by addressing these external things because you'll never have enough resources to help everyone. But if we could design a program that, you know, was, could develop um, resilience and leadership skills, you know, by helping people change their brain, well, that's scalable. And that's something that could be shared broadly with many people. And then people could um, direct, you know, their own path. They can navigate their path more effectively because there's not enough people to hold everyone's hands. But if people are willing to stand up and, and, and be the change, right, they have the courage to do so, then we can implement wider scale change. Um, and I remember, you know, one of the things that I found very inspiring walking around my neighborhood, I heard these two men talking and they were complaining about how hard it is to try to change your life. And one guy said, I don't need a handout. I need a hand up, right? And and there's this hunger that everyone has to have dignity and to have respect and to earn, you know, their path, not just to be given charity, right? And so I knew that I always wanted to stand on my two feet. I never wanted to feel like a burden on the system. And by giving people these tools, they can have that confidence that, they are the people who are doing the change. They are the leaders. They are affecting positive impact and, you know, creating this collaborative model where we're inviting and empowering people to um, change their brain and therefore change their world. You know, people love that. And when we pilot test the program with all these different, you know, students 
first in high school and then in college, you know, people found that it was extremely empowering to know that they had the choice to make and that it was up to them to develop their brain so they could exercise that choice more and more frequently in their lives. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Wei Kwok, author of the new book, that new book being Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy. It's an inspiring story, as well as the story of one woman's journey. Two people. One instinctively knows this stuff, and one like yourself had to figure it out and learn it. What do you think the difference is? Well, I mean, I think even if you knew it instinctively, when you go and find the science behind it, it becomes more powerful. Right. And I think for everyone, you know, we tend to want to praise talent um, to people who instinctively know these things. But when you instinctively know something, you can't really share it. When you then do the hard work of um, developing, you know, a methodical way of achieving it. That's something that can benefit countless people. Okay. Um, what is the science behind calm clarity? So uh, based on, you know, my readings of neuroscience, I developed what I call mind hacking techniques. Um, and for me, mind hacking means using science to enhance the best qualities of being human by proactively steering the development of your brain, right, to physical, physiologically support you to be the highest expression of who you are. And um, in, in my approach, basically, I ask people to discern, you know, all of us have these different voices in our head, but they kind of fall in three main categories. Um, when this part of the brain, I call brain 1.0, is activated, it's like this inner Godzilla takes over. It's your threat system, your fight-flight system. And when, it, when it's activated, you know, you may want to respond to things by smashing it or disappearing completely. And then um, another part of the brain, the reward system, which I call brain 2.0, when get, that gets activated, it's like this inner team wolf takes over um, to, to pursue these urges to get immediate gratification or to compete and win and get status. And then there's another part of the brain, which I call um, brain 3.0, which corresponds to the systems for self-mastery and well-being. And when that's activated, um, it's more that you have this inner sage that guides you to be the highest expression of yourself. And within every day, you know, these three voices can um, kind of have a conversation inside your head. But most of the time when we're stressed and something triggers us, we end up getting hijacked by the inner Godzilla or the inner Teen Wolf. And we may say and do things that, you know, actually hurt ourselves or undermine our long-term goals or may have a negative impact on other people. And by taking time to notice when you're on brain one now and brain two now, you can start to um, um, pause, right, and take a moment, if you need to, shift into brain three now. And, you know, um, sports is all about training and fitness and developing and practicing skills so that when you're in the field, right, they're there for you. And similarly, you know, if you exercise and activate brain three now on a regular basis, when the tough moments in life comes, you have brain 3.0, you know, when it's game day, right? And you can be your best self no matter what the situation or how challenging it is. And as you go from point 0.10 to point 3.0, your brain in fact changes, doesn't it? 
doesn't it physiologically? It, it does. I mean, based on brain science, every experience you have changes your brain because you're firing and wiring neural circuits or neural pathways together. And the more you use Brain 3.0, the stronger it gets. But alternatively, the more you use Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0, the stronger they get. And so, you know, every time we want to to get angry or we want to just, you know, chase our urges and impulses, we're actually strengthening those parts of the brain, too. Um, and you're listening to Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be right back after these messages with Zway Kwok, her new book, Tom Clarity. All this and more when we come back here on 94 WIP, the WIP time, 624. And we're back. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Zway Kwok, founder and CEO of Calm Clarity, the, um, the new book, Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy, and a whole lot more. All right. Zway, I have tried meditation mm-hmm. because I, over the years I've had many guests who talk meditation. Mm-hmm. And how do you, what I get stuck on is how do you turn off the monkey mind, what they call the monkey mind, all that chatter uh, that goes on in your head over and over. Yeah. How do you do that? So, so the, the, actually what meditation is supposed to do is not turn off your monkey mind. Um, so that's sort of a misconception. Um, what uh, meditation in Tibetan means, um, gom, is to become familiar or to befriend your monkey mind. And so um, the way I explain it to people when we do our, like, we basically hack meditation is that, you know, your default mode network, which is what's responsible for the monkey mind, you know, it activates anytime you're not really paying attention to a particular task or you get bored. And so it's actually designed to activate um, every six seconds even, right, because your, your neural circuits get tired when you focus on something and they kind of need a break. So the mind starts to wander, then you bring it back, and that's how you stay focused. So what meditation is doing is helping you um, work up the muscles, right, that part of the brain that's redirecting your attention back to the object. And so as you meditate, what's happening is that your monkey mind, a default mode network, you know, it starts to activate. And then if you are not um, aware that it has wandered, then you just start wandering with it into daydreams or fantasies or ruminations, right? Um, the key is to notice, oh, my mind just wandered, and then come back to the breath. Um, and then a more advanced practice is to note what it wandered to and start to recognize the patterns of how your monkey mind got fired and wired together because your monkey mind is unique to you. My monkey mind is unique to me. And it's sort of like opening the hood of a car and seeing, like, how did the engine get built, right? And so if you can pay attention to the monkey mind with a sense of curiosity and compassion, you start to develop much deeper sense of self-awareness and self-understanding. And you, you can start to see like, oh my God, I fired and wired. These things are associated in my brain, right? They might not be associated together in someone else's brain, but in your brain, they got tied together. And then you can start to see and understand how in situations, you know, how these triggers happen to you, right? And, and not take it as personally. 
but be able to, with curiosity and compassion, bring your monkey mind back to the present moment. And as you do that in meditation, right, your default mode network is rewiring so that you can be more present. And then in normal everyday life, what happens is your mind is wandering less and less. And then when you're talking to people, you know, you are really listening to them. Your mind's not sort of blanking out or going somewhere else. And that can actually change your relationships. If I understand you right, one way to put it is what's happening in the here and now can send you back to the there and then if you're not careful. Exactly. Um, Because I find sometimes when I'm dealing with people who annoy me, I find my mind wandering back to people who annoyed me years ago. Mm-hmm, because that, that it's bringing up these associations in you. And, um, and it's also energizing the part of the brain we call the inner critic, which is the combination of the inner Godzilla and the inner, inner teen wolf, right? And you go, like, when is this conversation over? How do I get away, you know? And you may not be able to actually see them as human beings or listen to them because you're recreating, you know, this other story in your head based on past experiences you've had with people like them. Then how do you tell the inner critic to shut the bleep up? Well, you don't, right? I think the important thing, again, is befriending your monkey mind and understanding um, how did your inner critic get built and then how does it serve you. So in many ways, your inner critic is a self-defense mechanism to avoid whatever happened in the past repeating itself um, in the same way so you can avoid feeling ashamed, you can avoid feeling guilty, you can avoid feeling used, right? So it's not necessarily a bad thing because it's alerting you like you've been through the situation before. However, sometimes the storyteller is wrong, right? And so you got to be aware that, you know, it's your mind projecting a situation out there and you need to turn to inner sage mode to double check, like, is the story true? And then with the, if, as you shift into brain 3.0, the inner sage gets louder and the volume of the inner critic gets smaller, right? So it's, it's still there, but it's not driving you nuts and it's not causing you to be reactive. It's just like having an internal board of advisors where you say, okay, inner critic, I got the message. You know, I appreciate whatever you're trying to make me aware of. And then let's, you know, listen to my inner sage and see what this person has to say, right? This persona or this, this voice in my head um, that's going to have a wiser response. And as long as you make a mental note that you can always, you know, ask, you know, shift your attention to this sense within you that's much more compassionate, right? You can learn how to respond to your inner critic without having to, like, strangle it. And that reduces your need to strangle or, like, get mad at people in real life as well. Now, when we're born, is Mm -hmm. everybody born with an equal 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0, and life messes with it, or... It's one born stronger than the other. Um, so when you're born, brain 1.0 is fully formed. It may actually fully form when you're in your womb because its job is to keep you safe. Brain 2.0 actually starts to um, take over, become much stronger in adolescence, which is while teenagers, you know, become much more into risk-taking. But brain 3.0 doesn't fully form until your mid-20s. And even then, after it's um, there, you have to use it to strengthen it. So for many of us, um, if you can think of brain 1.0 and brain 2.0 as like lower body strength, 
You know, you can carry your weight all day running stairs, um, you know, going on the broad street run even because, you know, your, your legs are used to carrying that weight. But your arms, your upper body, you know, unless you work out and you, you're, you do um, sports, right, you may not be able to do many um, pull-ups or you might not be able to do like 50 or 100 push-ups, right? It's something that you have to train and develop. So, so that's how Brain 3.0 works. So all of us are born with great amounts of Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0, but unless we choose to cultivate Brain 3.0, you know, it's like use it or lose it. So many people have a teeny tiny little 3.0, you know, what I would call somebody who's born with a brain that's about as dumb as a box of rocks. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, again, that's your inner critic talking about that person. Okay. <laughs> but everyone is born with the seed of greatness, which is brain 3.0. Everyone can develop it and have more. Like even in my case, I was born um, right after the Vietnam War at a time of great um, pain and agony, and my mom was depressed, and people were, you know, preparing to escape Vietnam. And, you know, there's a lot of terror and fear. And then during the journey, you know, like we hit all sorts of problems. We ran out of food. I nearly starved to death. Um, the boat was robbed. A lot of women were raped um, and then eventually made it to a refugee camp. Um, and even then the conditions were horrible and like babies and elderly people died every day. And so I had to survive, right? So Brain 1.0 got really, really strong in me. But... Um, you know, Brain 3.0 didn't really get a chance to develop, and I was slow. I didn't learn how to talk, right? I was developmentally challenged, um, and it wasn't until I was, like, six years old that I finally really could talk. But, you know, when you, um, you know, get hungry and you want to develop, right, then you can make choices to keep um, activating Brain 3.0 so you can catch up, right? So these things are not, um, you're not doomed, just because you didn't develop it until a certain stage in your life, there's always time to catch up. And one thing, like we've done these programs for, you know, students in West Philadelphia, um, kids who were written off. And once they experienced what it was like to be in Brain 3.0, many of these students said, like, that's the real me. You know, that inner Godzilla version, that inner Timo version, that's not the real me. And many of them, you know, made a commitment to continue to do these practices so they could be the peacemakers in their family. And the testimonials we received from the students were so powerful that I knew that, you know, I needed to keep doing this, that I shouldn't stop. So it's never too late to go into 3.0? Never too late. Hmm. That's interesting. Because I can hear people now going, oh, I'm too old to do that. And you're saying that's not the case. That's not the case. I mean, sure, the, the neural pathways of 1.0 and 2.0 are strong in all of us, but if you make that choice that you want to develop brain 3.0, you know, with younger people, you know, their brains are more plastic, so you can see dramatic changes in like two weeks' time. I think with older people, you know, you may have to practice more intensely. You may have to do it for longer periods of time before you can retrain your brain so that brain 3.0 becomes your normal state of mind. Um, but it can happen and has happened, and there's instances of scientific studies where they've documented dramatic neuroplasticity in people in their 90s. How do you begin? How does somebody begin? Obviously, they can buy your book, but what else can they do? Well, um, <clears throat> what we share with people, and on our website, we have, like, information on the framework. 
the first step is to recognize this inner critic, right? And this inner, like, and it's made of both the inner Godzilla and the inner Teen Wolf because Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0 are just two sides of one coin. Like, you feel like you really need to get something. And, you know, if you don't get it, like, your life sucks, right? So you, you chase these carrots, and if you don't get them, you can blow up, you know, in Brain 1.0, the inner Godzilla comes out. And so a lot of times, you know, when we're angry, it's because we didn't get something we thought we were entitled to or that we felt like we deserved and, and or that we thought we need to be happy. And sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not true. So you have to start questioning whatever the inner critic is saying to you and realize that, you know, it might not be true. And that's hard because a lot of people have been believing and empowering and energizing their inner critic their entire lives. Um, but what we teach people is that our body has biofeedback and mental feedback um, signals, right, that show you you're not in brain 3.0. So when you start getting clenched, you know, when there's a lot of knots in your stomach, when your shoulders get tight, you know, your body's in a fight-or-flight state, basically, and you're probably getting into brain 1.0. And then it's up to you, you know, to listen to the voice in your head and realize it's telling you to do things that are quite negative. Um, it's actually trying to get you to act out these self-limiting patterns that may have uh, impaired your potential for a long time. And so only by activating Brain 3.0, and we share with people, sometimes it's very simple to calm your, your fight or flight system. It just takes deep breathing. So I share, you know, a 6-3-6-3 breathing cycle where you inhale for six minutes very slowly. You hold your breath for three minutes. You exhale, I mean, that's three minutes, seconds. For six, so you inhale for a count of six seconds. You hold for a count of three seconds. You exhale for a count of six seconds. You hold for a count of three seconds. And you do that at least three times um, for possibly up to three minutes. And your entire autonomic nervous system is going to shift from sympathetic, which is fight or flight, to parasympathetic mode. Your rest and digest system kicks in, and there will be much more blood flow that goes to your brain. Another thing you can do, right, is to just tune into your body and feel your feet on the ground. Feel how when you're breathing, your lungs expand and contract. And if you can, you can tune into your heartbeat and feel where the pulse is strongest in your body. And that's activating something we call interoception, which is the part of the nervous system that allows you to diagnose <clears throat> what's happening inside your body. And when you do that, you're also activating the parasympathetic nervous system and helping to shift your body out of a fight, fight or flight state, right? So these tiny little hacks, right, can bring you back to the present moment so you can think more clearly and the inner sage may speak to you. It's interesting. The inner sage is the parent you wish you had almost, and the inner critic is the parent many of us end up with, that voice in our head that tells us everything we've done wrong. Exactly. So you, you got it. And, and again, unfortunately, you know, many of our parents were raised by their parents and their critics, too. So this is just a cycle that's been transmitted across generations for a long time. And, you know, it's easy for us to say, like, this shouldn't have happened. But the harder part is for us to break that cycle of transmission and stop doing that to ourselves, to our families and to other people. Then how do we explain people who should know better, probably do know better, still do dumb stuff? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's part of why I developed these, this framework is because 
you know, I went into these meditation retreats and for a few days, you know, experienced such bliss and you have all these people talk about, you know, how they want to be spiritual and like lead, lead these very profound teachings. But then in normal everyday life, everybody reverts to their inner Godzilla or inner Team Wolf. <laughs> and I was like, so why doesn't this stick, right? And that's because, um, you know, one, we're all code switching. Like in every situation, we're just, our brain is so used to being in a certain way of, of firing that when we come back to that situation, it just basically reverts to that pattern. So the brain 3.0 pattern, you know, you can have it activate at church. You can have it activate in community service because that's when it's expressed. But then when you're, you know, at work, you know, where you're used to being in brain 2.0 mode or you're in the subway and used to being in brain 1.0 mode because it's crowded and dirty, um, you know, the inner Godzilla and inner Teen Wolf are more likely to express itself. So then the key is that you have to rewire your brain so that you're bringing brain 3.0 into these situations where you're normally in brain 2.0. And that takes a lot more conscious effort. Because we live in a world where we believe on some level, he who dies with the most toys wins, or do unto them before they do unto you. Yes. However, um, that, that's how the inner Godzilla inner team will talk, right? So many of our institutions and our culture were built by people in Brain 2.0. And so to be in Brain 3.0, right, we might have to redesign our culture so that it brings more people into Brain 3.0. And culture constantly evolves, right? Well, the type of culture that was in place 200 years ago is very different from what we have today. Well, obviously, I, as you were talking, I was thinking the founding fathers must have spent a lot of time in 3.0. Yeah, but also in 2.0 and, and 1.0 because we know they like their booze. Mm -hmm. booze <laughs> and, and they their... were in the wartime. <laughs> and their women. But that's another, yeah. that's another discussion. So, I mean, we like to put them on pedestals, but again, I think it was situational when they got together and it was about building something, you know, for a greater purpose that, you know, a new nation that was based on their ideals, they were able to be in Brain 3.0. But in other parts of their lives, I think their inner Teen Wolf and inner Godzilla definitely took over. Why do you do this? I mean, obviously you have a commitment, but you're never going to get rich. Well, I mean, again, that's your inner critic talking to me. Okay. Um, All right, I well, mean, money isn't everything, but it's sure way ahead of what's in second place. Sure, but, you know, you look at people, like, not that I'm trying to emulate them, but, like, Tony Robbins is a multi-billionaire. Um, there are plenty of self-help gurus who make huge amounts of money. Um, so it's not that there's no money here, right? Um but the main reason I do this is because I think the world needs more light. And when you help people shift into brain 3.0, they can really shine their light and they can really change the world. Something and just my, good. Uh, I was going to say my goal is to not just shift individuals, but actually work with corporations and organizations to build in processes and systems and culture that enable their organization to function in brain 3.0. Something... Um, popped into my head, and if, I, and if it's insulting, I apologize. Mm -hmm. um, you're from Southeast Asia, and a lot of what, mm -hmm. you're, what you're putting out, it seems to me to have a, an Asian philosophy to it. Mm -hmm. um, do you think you would have invented the same thing or come up with the same research if you had been from Europe, um, Africa, South America? Mm 
Well, again, everyone has a tradition, an ancestry, and a past, so they may be influenced by their life experience to explore different, you know, um, types of practices and things. However, the science of it, you know, isn't confined to any continent or any particular history. Most of the people who are doing research in contemplative neuroscience are actually American and Europeans, right? So if you look at the list of all these neuroscientists who are doing this research, many of them are from European and, you know, highly educated, you know, American universities. And, and you know, so it's, it, it transcends nationality, it transcends border, it transcends culture. People want to understand the science of human flourishing, and they're willing to, you know, see whichever practices make the most sense to explore. You make me wonder if we ought to teach this stuff in public school. Well, there is a growing movement to do so, and there are several nonprofits in the city which focus on this. Uh, I mean, focus on at least bringing meditation into schools. Um, I have tried, uh, you know, when we first started pilot testing, you know, I was bootstrapping it, and we were testing it in public schools. Um, but as a small organization, it's pretty challenging to work with a large school system. So in the end, I decided to work directly with college students, and, and the college students inspired me to build the Collective Success Network with them. And now that, you know, we have more than 300 college students involved in that, and they've set up campus chapters at Temple University, Drexel University, and the University of UPenn. And so we find that it's a lot easier when you're working with the students themselves who are hungry than to try to work with administrators at schools who are just overwhelmed and overloaded. How do you pay the bills? How do you pay the bills for the Collective Success Network? Well, that's based on fundraising. So we raise um, sponsorship and uh, in-kind donations from corporations. And so, I mean, it's pretty incredible. We started about a year ago, and we um, pilot-tested, prototyped new programming that impacted the lives of about 300 students. And we did that all on a budget of um, less than $20,000, you know, because we're a volunteer-driven organization. And it works because we can activate, you know, people across these different corporations who want to give back and pay it forward. Pay it forward is Brain 3.0, isn't it? It is. I mean, there's a strong hunger for people, you know, to have and experience more Brain 3.0 in their lives. And when you, you can create an organization that basically is about embodying Brain 3.0, you know, it inspires a lot of people to come forward. You have a website? Yes. So for Collective Success, for anyone who wants to get involved, that's collectivesuccess.org. And then for Calm Clarity, which is more focused on mind hacking, how to change your brain, how to understand yourself and, you know, break all these self-limiting patterns so you can be your best self, that's calmclarity.org. And I'd like to say thank you to my guest this morning, Zwei Quash. Her new book, Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy. You're your own living success. Thank you, Clay. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And it's been conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be right back after these messages.